to the Total Soccer Show Weekend Review. It was a weekend where KDB was key as Man City made United take the knee. Where a loss for Jesse Marsh might have been harsh. Where the Queen City had a home opener that looked pretty, but they lost. What a pity. Where Napoli looked at the title race and had the chance to seize, but for now it's looking Milanese. And where it wasn't so nice for PSG as Nice used some elbow grease to fleece Les Parisians. That was so close to rhyming. So, so close. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who would never have 217 unread text messages on his phone because 216 unread text messages is his limit. Uh, is that right, Taylor Rockwell? Uh, it's probably more than that right now. It's 227 as of this morning. So um, on on the socials, uh, listener, uh-huh. if you look, um, Taylor posted a screenshot of a conversation with Tommy Scoops in which you could see he had 216 unread text messages. I had to lay down for a minute when I saw that. <laughs> Admittedly... A good, like, half of them, because I, I, I checked, a good half of them are from my indoor soccer team with everyone just confirming whether or not they will be there, and I just sort of see that and keep on going. So Are there a lot 100 of people messages. on your indoor team, Taylor? <laughs> no, it's, it's, like, it's like two years of games that I've just been like, uh-huh, yep, I'll be there, like, not really checking marked. But a lot of them are just like, okay, sounds good, like, thumbs up. And when they do the, like, heart emoji, that comes through as a text. So a lot of it is just, like, conversations that have ended or temporarily paused but either way i'm good with it because it made ryan anxious okay i'm sitting down i'm gonna ask you a very important question how many unread gmails do you have like more than you can possibly fathom four or five (laughs) figures uh it's probably four figures all right uh let's see here i think it's only three figures yeah no none none in your face in your face the app is updated there we go Um, but I can tell you there's like 50 or 60 probably Wow! Uh, over the weekend. <laughs> it fills up. Uh, listener, just so you know, we've just done an edit point there. I, uh, we, this is two hours later when I've just woken up from, uh, from my uh, <laughs> shock that I fell into there from Taylor's. Uh, who are you not answering? Oh, okay. I've got so many questions. We should get to it at another time. But for now, joining us is a man who is sharp-witted and quick to respond, which is why we call him Graham, nothing like Man United's defense, Ruffin. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan Billy. That's maybe the the greatest compliment you've ever paid me, uh, and I, it's just a shame that it has come at the expense of Taylor Rockwell's team. Is who it? Are dreadful. <laughs> You're very welcome. I should be nicer to you if that's the best I've ever done for you, Graham. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I mean, you, yeah, you, you've a heard you bar. talk to Graham, right? <laughs> all right, all right. I'm reflecting on my own shortcomings <laughs> after seeing yours and your unread text messages. I understand. Oh, <laughs> Let's swing it over to the uh, the man who is completing our lineup, the man who comes out swinging more often than Austin FC this season, our Adarad Joe Larry. Oh, nice Matthew McConaughey there, Ryan. Yeah, 10 goals in two games. Granted, and this is a hard granted against FC Cincinnati and Inter Miami. Still, man, a fun start to the year for Austin, a fun start to this show. Let's let's do this thing, fellas. Let's do this thing indeed. We are going to be talking about MLS uh, later on, including Charlotte FC's home opener, which at least 50% of Total Soccer Show was physically present for. How exciting. Uh, we've also got a Manchester derby. We've got some action in Syria, and we'll round up all the other leagues as per usual. Uh, we do start off on a slightly uh, more somber note, though, with leagues uh, with the news from Mexico, from Liga Mekis over the weekend. Liga Mekis being suspended after dozens were injured as fights uh, broke out on the pitch in the game between uh, Queretaro and 
Atlas. At least 26 people were injured, according to the most recent reports I saw this morning, including three critical injuries when fans brawled and uh, started a riot during the game. Initial unconfirmed reports in the Mexican media said up to 17 people had died in the violence. That has yet to be confirmed. Uh, details are a little sketchy at the moment. CONCACAF issued a statement. CONCACAF wholly condemns these types of behaviours. We call on the local authorities to fully investigate these criminal acts and to hold accountable those who tarnish our game. The Confederation also believes that strong football sanctions must be applied and will provide any necessary support to uh, Liga Mekis and the FMF as they investigate. Taylor, a troubling situation. Um, and as I say, we are a little light on details, but it does mm. seem like there's going to be some implications for Mexican soccer here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, league president came out and, and has already... Uh, made some of those clear. No away supporters permitted uh, for the rest of the season, or at least for the time being. More rules concerning relationships between clubs and supporters. They want to be able to track supporters and know who's going to be involved. Uh, and it could go so far as Querétaro getting kicked out of the league or disenfranchised. Their stadium, in the meantime, has been shut down, banned from any additional games until the investigation is concluded. Uh, but as to the kind of sketchiness of the details, I think the question, as I understand it, looms, is that because it's just difficult to know and, the, and there was so much chaos that we don't yet know specific details, or is it because they're being deliberately sketchy with some of the details? There's been a strong fan response from Atlas fans that I've seen giving their kind of first-person narratives of what happened. A lot of them straight up saying, I have friends who died, or I know people died. Again, that hasn't been officially reported, but it speaks to a larger distrust, I think, between the government, the the state government in Querétaro, and, and the club itself, which is a private entity, so there was private security and no police, and there were not adequate uh, protections in place. There weren't any way of sort of getting things under control. That's why fans stream onto the field, is because it's unsafe in the stands, and so it looks for a moment like it's Atlas fans causing this chaos, but in reality, it was the fighting in the stands that forced them onto the pitch, and then when the fighting was on the pitch, it forced them out of the stadium as quickly as possible, even with violence along the way. So a really distressing uh, incident this weekend and a lot of extreme reporting, extreme footage. I would encourage people not to watch it because it is pretty brutal at times. But I think it is a situation that requires, uh, I hope, a big spotlight and not uh, the lack thereof. Yeah, our thoughts, of course, to all those affected by this incident. As you say, Taylor, I think there are many investigations to be done here, and this is a moving story, so more detail will come to light. But it does seem, yeah, perhaps some sanctions are forthcoming for Liga Mekis and, and uh, at least one of the teams involved in this one. Um, yep. Gents, shall we turn our attention to the Premier League and the big one this weekend on Sunday, the Manchester Derby, Man City 4, Man United 1. Uh, United, Graham, won their last three trips to the Etihad. Not mm -hmm. this time. Braces for Kevin De Bruyne and uh, Riyad Mahrez in this one. City making United look pretty bad for the second time this season, Graham. What I enjoyed also, um, you know, this was City playing the hits, being at their very best, but uh, also the fans doing the Poznan and the Yaya and the Colo song. They were like, yeah. hey, it's, it's 10 years ago, everybody. We're, we're doing this. <laughs> Yeah, you know it's bad when the family stand at the Etihad is doing the Poznan uh, with 10 <laughs> minutes to go and Man Man Manchester City are having 92% of possession and mine it's just 8% of possession. It did end pretty brutally for United and, and I have to say... Um, Roy Keane after the match. Roy, Roy Keane has a habit of turning every discussion about Manchester United into a case of fighting spirit and determination and intangible stuff like that. And he went unstrong on this United team after full time here. In this case, I do think he was right to question the character of this United team. The way mm. they played that final 25 minutes of this match was 
pretty unacceptable. Um, the body language was terrible. As I say, City had so much of the ball, and they can do that. But you just got the sense that United had given up that that final stage of the match. And and, and I'm not trying to come across as a proper football man, but th- there was, uh, you know, there was. No, it didn't feel like there was anybody on that pitch who was in a red shirt. I should say who was angry about that situation or felt embarrassed or wanted to show that they cared at least um and as a as a fan you know as a minded fan i could imagine that would be very very i mean taylor what what did you think of the way that minded finished that match as a fan oh i loved it super fun <laughs> not at all infuriating and frustrating i watched it on delay i knew uh from my friends messages that uh it started okay then got bad then was okay and then got a lot worse and that is pretty much how it played out um i think so to some extent, I understand where the like the lack of effort, the lack of enthusiasm arguments are coming from. I do agree with it. I also think it is, on a basic level, a game in which one team threw something completely unexpected at another team that plays a very like fluid style of soccer. And I think that's why even as Man City went up 1-0, Pep is still screaming at everybody and trying to get everybody on the same page because it doesn't feel like they're handling certain things that Manchester United are throwing at them. United get the goal on the counter, and I think that speaks to what Pep was screaming about. But then in the second half, when you have that 15-minute break where where it felt like Pep was going to figure it out, he was going to make the little adjustments that were necessary to basically use what Manchester United were, were doing against them, it, it, it then becomes incumbent on Ralph Ragnick and Manchester United to have that second game plan so that they stay ahead of the changes that Man City are making. And when it comes out in the first minute or two and it's just really clear, oh, no, they're doing the exact same thing and now Man City know exactly how to deal with it, it felt like it was going to get worse. It felt like it could have been worse. I thought it might end up 6-1 or or something like that. So 4-1, I guess, is good. Uh, Graham, uh, one question I, I have for you about Roy mm-hmm. Keane's comments. Um, Graham and I are just going to go back and forth on this one, guys. <laughs> uh, I was a little confused by him focusing in on the Ronaldo issue. Ronaldo, not involved in this one, had a uh, hip flexor injury, I believe it was, yeah, sure on he did. Friday. Uh, uh, well, exactly. Uh, and then basically when it seemed like he was going to be ruled out, he flies to Portugal. Ralph Ragnick, I said, he doesn't want players uh, going abroad to get treatment. He wants everything done in-house. So right there, it already feels like maybe there's a little bit of a disconnect. Was Roy Keane, when he talked about this, was he criticizing the way Manchester United dealt with it? Or was he criticizing Ronaldo? Because my assumption was that he was frustrated Ronaldo wasn't there. But it seemed like he kind of had a go at Rangnick for how he was talking about it, what he was saying. And same thing for Edson Cavani as well. It seemed like he was frustrated that Rangnick was covering for the players and not frustrated with the players themselves. Um, difficult, difficult to say, to be honest. I think he, he's probably just aiming at everyone and, and everything all, all at once, to be honest. That seems to be the Roy Keane way. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Ronaldo thing is, is strange. The Athletic have reporting today that he has, he's back in, in, um, in Portugal, as you say, Taylor, and that Manchester United, the Manchester United dressing room is yeah. surprised that he's in Portugal, um, which doesn't paint the picture of a United dressing room, which is exactly what manifested itself on the pitch on, on Sunday there. But um, Edison Cavani as well, you know, 20, 23 out of what? how many games? I can't, can't remember how many games as my United have played in total. It might be 38, actually, in total this season, all competitions. He's missed 23 of 38 games, and it now feels like he, a player who you would have said previously gave his all on the pitch and seemed to be really engaged with, with what my United are doing, he seems to have thrown in the towel as well. So I, I get it. Like the, the, Man City have a tactical and a talent advantage over United, and they win this game even if Manchester United are running themselves into the ground because they're just so much better. They're years ahead of Manchester United. But 
this match in particular, there's, there is a question about the commitment of these players. People talk about Klopp and Guardiola as ta- great tacticians, and they are, but one of the qualities that they have as coaches is they get players fighting for them. Their system and their approach doesn't work if you don't have full intensity from those players for 90 minutes, and Ranić is just not getting that from this Man United group, despite the fact that in the first half, they did some good things. I thought Man United at halftime at 2-1 uh, down, even even at that point, could be probably pretty satisfied about how they'd played. They'd been they'd been uh, caught out at the back twice with two pretty poor pieces of defending. Harry Maguire and Victor Lindelof is a clown show whenever oh, they play together at the back. I have no idea what's going on there. But their general performance up until that moment had been pretty good. But the second half, wow, was abysmal. Joe, I'd like to get your thoughts on on the lay of the land in this game. Um, obviously, City doing City things, and you know, players like Jack Grealish had a really good game. Kevin De Bruyne, as mentioned, uh, very very good, two goals and an assist here. But on Man United, there a game of two halves, as, as we've mentioned, there decent, well, pretty decent uh, press in the first half, uh, and things completely falling apart in the second. No attempts on goal in the second half. Joe, how did you how did you read this one? That second half is the really frustrating bit for me, putting myself in the position of a Manchester United fan. So I guess I'm going to shave my head and grow out my beard a little I, bit. I, I <laughs> am one. And, yeah. uh, yes, you should. And yes, it was frustrating, Joe. Can confirm. I mean, we've already kind of cited a couple of the key anecdotal stats from that second half. No shots. That's. I mean, that's kind of where I want to focus here first. We're talking about player buy-in, and I think that's a huge part of this. We think about Ralph Rangnick's approach and what his soccer philosophy is It's play against the ball, it's be aggressive, it's try to step and then attack space in attacking transition. That didn't really happen a whole lot in the second half. As we mentioned, there were stretches of the second 45 where they had 8% possession. That's not their whole stat for the second half, it's not their whole stat for this game. But Manchester United could not get on the ball. They could not pressure City, which then when you can't effectively pressure the opposition, it limits your opportunities to go and attack in transition, which is the main attacking piece that Ralph Rangnick has really tried to implement, or at least based off of his past stops, would try to, in, would, would try to implement in a stop like this. We're not seeing that right now, and that's a huge issue. Then you look at just the defending itself. So it's clear that there's not a lot of attacking impetus with this team right now, although I will say that Jaden Sancho counterattacking goal was incredible. That was probably my favorite goal of this whole game. There are a few things in soccer that I think are better than a really well-executed and, and well-taken counterattacking goal, and that curler from Sancho was just that with all the build-up before it and Bruno's one touch to release Pogba. Beautiful, right? But defensively as well, you think about Rangnick, okay, his his thing is that he's going to prepare a team to defend well, which then translates into shots. The shots aren't coming, so you take a, a look back one step earlier and look at the defensive piece, and man, Ryan, I know you mentioned that there was some good pressing going on in the first half, and there was, right? City, uh, Manchester United, excuse me, in this 4-4-2, 4-2 shape, and they are trying to force the ball wide and trap with the, the strong side striker and wide midfielder and central midfielder, and they had some good looks there. But for every one of those, there were four moments of City just knifing right through them. You look at that first Bernardo goal, excuse me, that first De Bruyne goal that Bernardo plays the cutback for, City at no point in that sequence have a numerical advantage, at least not that I could find watching it back, but they do have positional advantages all over that left side, and, and that happened over and over and over again in this game. For me, you can see the lack of buy-in, or maybe it's not the players, and I think there is certainly an element of that, but even if we rule that out and say it's not, you can see the the poor tactical instructions from Ralph Rangnick. It has to be one or the other or a mix of the two. You add in the talent deficit that Manchester United are at relative to City, and, and you have a really troubling mix of elements here. And to me, it's no surprise that, that Manchester United lost 4-1 in this game. 
Joe, completely agree, and I'm really happy you spotlighted that first goal because it stood out to me as an example of like Man City just having all of these different little things they can throw at you, and if you bite on one or bite on two, suddenly it's going to snowball. And in this case, Phil Foden, I think, starts in an offside position. Lindelof is tracking him. He checks all the way back. The center backs for Man City are passing the ball, and Scott McTominay, I think, is... Like, in the vicinity of Bernardo Silva, make, like, discouraging a pass into his feet. But Phil Foden checks into space on McTominay's left. Bernardo Silva's on his right. And Lindelof, like, tells him, hey, Foden's coming, or whatever he probably says. But clearly gestures for him to be aware of Phil Foden. McTominay slides over maybe two steps. And as he does that, as soon as he slides, Foden checks away again. And then Bernardo Silva drops into this pocket of space, receives the ball in turns, and then McTominay has to make a decision, and he doesn't try to close down immediately. He instead tries to get back goal side, but then, weirdly, tries to close down Bernardo Silva. Silva lays the ball off to, I think, Cancelo, and McTominay keeps tracking him. And at that point, McTominay is just running around. Graham, I'm sorry to have to criticize your son like this, but it's, <laughs> it's sort of, you can see what he's supposed to do and how he's playing this disciplined defensive approach, but one little wrinkle, one little change, one little variable from Man City, and suddenly it doesn't work as well. And I think that's the difference between this well-oiled machine of Man City and this, whatever the opposite of a well-oiled machine would be for Manchester United, they're figuring it out. You can see little things in place. You can see how they're trying to build on things that they've done previously, but they're not at that level yet where they can just switch into a next thing really quickly or have that kind of, okay, now he's jumping yeah. in, now I'm back on him. There's not that level of awareness there. And, and when you don't have that level of awareness, it will spiral. And in this case, it keeps opening and keeps opening. And then suddenly Kevin De Bruyne is wide open in the box with Alex Tellish. Pointing at him, Telesh is marking two at the back post, so it's not his fault. I would say Fred probably should have dropped back. But either way, it speaks to a larger lack of being on the same page for Manchester United pretty consistently in this game. And and Man United are generally unable to change their 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 tactics, their approach in a game because they don't have two way players in the way that City do. So City, depending on the the period of the match, you know they can have Kevin De Bruyne, who by the way in this match he there's points where he plays as a deep line playmaker, there's points where he plays as a box to box midfielder. He's a number ten, he's out wide, he's even in the fullback position, he's taking the ball off the the central defenders and driving it forward. So he he's capable of doing a number of different roles. And you look at City's. Uh, team as a whole they have players that like that you know Swiss army knife players who can okay Kyle Walker needs to drop back and fill in that space to stop Jaden Sancho exploiting that he can do that okay now he needs to push up and play as a right winger he can do that United in the second half we saw the limitations of their players you know McTominay and Fred they needed them to get on the ball and start dictating some of the pressure uh, some of the possession they can't do that they're a protective barrier that's their, their one trick pony that's all they can do Aaron Wan-Bissaka he's played in this game to provide some defensive cover but when United needs him in the second half to provide an, an outlet to relieve some of the pressure he can't do that you know United have these players who are only capable of really one thing where City have their whole team maybe with the exception of Rodri they can do multiple things and depending on the match and what the match needs at that moment they can change that's that for me just um, highlighted the difference between the two teams and how far behind United are they have good individuals but as a, as a unit as a team they're well behind City well, on that note, Taylor, we've talked about, you know, the lack of oil in the well oil machine, the lack of buy-in here. The, the, if we take a step back, it's a team that doesn't have a plan, playing a team with a master plan that's been in action for over a decade. Yeah. So with that, let's talk about Ralph Ranjik. Like, <laughs> yeah. why, why, why would we want him to move upstairs at Man United if this is what he's doing downstairs? What, how yeah. is this part of the plan? How does he help things if he stays at this club? Like, what does next year look like, I suppose, is my question, if this is what we're getting now. Um, 
I, I personally, like maybe this is my bias because I thought it was a really smart appointment and I thought it was the first step in the right direction that they've had in a long time. But I think you're bringing Ralph Rangnick into a team that was, in my opinion, built by Ole Gunnar Solskjaer or, or built by a couple different managers. But under the latest Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, it seemed to be about let's just get the personalities in. Let's get the attitude back. Let's get the swagger in there and we'll just find a way to win. We have the attacking talent where Manchester United will get results. And I do think he was a very vibes manager and a very positive uh, force in that locker room. But I don't think he was the disciplinarian. I don't think he was particularly adept at handling the massive personalities that broke out in some of the clicks. And I think that that is very much evident in this team now that it's, it's basically they saw the team from last season and thought, yeah, we were, you know, good season, a couple more players. We can, we can like, like achieve the ultimate, we can win the title. But to me, it's basically, they just, poured more gasoline on a fire, that it was already an issue. There were already problems there. And they added more problems to it, thinking that would be the solution. And so now Rangnick is being asked to get this team to play a style that uh, it seems like at least one very high-profile player, but maybe several others, do not want to play and are not interested in playing and don't know how long he's going to be there, don't know what his mandate is. Uh, but I, as, as I understand it, he is not the most avuncular of fellows, and, and I think he's a little bit more academic. Uh, he clearly has uh, like good ideas in mind, good ideas at heart, supporting Ukraine. But I think overall, it doesn't seem like he has been able to reach this squad. And I think my perspective as a fan would be my hope as a fan would be that it's it is him in a position of some authority next season he brings in that they listen to him he has said he knows which manager he thinks it should be it kind of makes me nervous that he says it like that because it feels like that's not going to be the way they go but I hope it's a manager he thinks would work and then everybody buys into that philosophy that style they're working together they're getting rid of some of the players who don't want to be there and I think that's what you have to do you got to break a few Ronaldo's in this case uh, instead of eggs uh, <laughs> because I, I felt like I, I put this in the notes um that Pep at the very end in his post-match comments kind of had a go at Ronaldo and a little bit of defense of Rangnick in my mind he said uh, they played four two four, so aggressive from Ralph, and without Cristiano, they could do it. And to me, that feels like he's basically saying Cristiano Ronaldo is a thing that is holding this team back. So credit to Ralph Rangnick for trying to make something happen. Uh, I, I, it seems to me like he is doing the best he can with the pieces he has, the personalities he has. Uh, I hope that it's better next season. I hope that he he is backed and and we see it continue on because otherwise it's just more chopping and changing. And maybe the next one will figure it out. That mm. feels very on the fly as well. Yeah, it does indeed. I just feel like this will be a case study in years to come. We'll look at this period of Man United as, as a case study in how not to do things in a large yeah. organization. They, yeah. If they want another statue outside Old Trafford, it should be the dog with the coffee with the fire around it saying this is fine if they want to represent this period. I mean, uh, well, dude, they're still singing Giggs' song. So like, maybe <laughs> it'll be a statue to Giggs. That that was so representative for me at the uh, end of the game that there's all the fans doing the Pazdan, doing the Yaya Kolo song, and Manchester United fans trying to keep up by screaming a song in glory of Ryan Giggs, which includes Giggs will tear you apart, which is not maybe the lyrics that you want these days when it comes to Ryan Giggs. And they did so, play uh, they play that Joy Division song at the end over the PA for, for the benefit of Man City fans uh, for what it's worth. Uh, yeah. Joe, could we finish up on this game with a quick note about the positives of Man City? I feel we've talked about Man United a lot here. Can we just um, uh, add some shine to City here? Absolutely. Man, Bernardo Silva and Kevin De Bruyne were so good in this game and that's not surprising. There's so little I think that, that City can throw at us that we'll be surprised by at this point. But we saw this 4-3-3 with flexible fullbacks. Most of the play came down the left for City, which is why I think Bernardo had so many chances to shine. As I alluded to and I guess referenced earlier, 
the positioning off the ball of Bernardo was so, so good on that left side. He'd often be in between and behind pretty much every single Manchester United player on the right side of Man United's defense and midfield block in that 4-4-2 that they were in. He was constantly popping up in spaces where they had to really figure out, okay, do we step? Do we leave him there? How do we want to go about the situation defensively? And he was acting quicker than Manchester United could think. Kevin De Bruyne was really dangerous, crashing the box on that right side, also getting involved some in possession. Mares and, and Grealish did a good job of stretching the field. Or Bernardo and Cancelo would, would fill that role on the left side at times if Grealish came inside more. This was a peak Manchester City performance. They were phenomenal in this game, as they so often have been. And I will say... This was a really important result for them as well. They needed this win to give themselves a bit of cushion ahead of Liverpool, and they got exactly that. With the win, City put themselves six points clear of Liverpool, but Liverpool do have a game in hand. So they essentially ensured, okay, if Liverpool win, their game in hand will be at least three points up. If they lose this game or draw, things are a lot more congested at the top of the table. Riyad Riyad Mahrez has to be one of the most underappreciated players anywhere. I mean, people know he's good, but he's got 21 goals this season. Uh, He's been incredible for City and has been incredible for the last two, three years. And yet, if you ask someone to name City's best players, you would get, you know, Kevin De Bruyne, Phil Foden, Raheem Sterling. I I do wonder how how far down the list most people would would go before they get to Riyad Mahrez. And Mm. and in this game, he he was excellent again in this game. As I say, 21 goals this season, that's that's pretty incredible. That uh, that half volley from the corner was fantastic, albeit... Like it was the second time he tried to do it, and still United didn't yeah. deal with it in any way yeah. whatsoever. <laughs> they, they, as I've said before, they are a very, very stupid team, <laughs> and that goal uh, proved it. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. On that note, we'll take a very quick break. When we come back, more of the Premier League and Major League Soccer. Back soon. Hey, folks. This is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show, reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willingly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with. And unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's talk about the rest of the Premier League from the weekend. Uh, we had Leicester 1, Leeds nil. Joseph, Jesse Marsh's first game in charge. Leeds' fifth loss in a row. He's got quite a job there, hasn't he? He has. Man, I, I, I thought Leeds were good in this game. I thought you could see a lot of what Jesse Marsh is trying to do and has done at, at a lot of his last ops. Generally, if I'm a Leeds fan, I, I know you don't get those three points or at least a point, and that's really important right now. There's only 11 games left in the Premier League season four Leeds, and every game certainly counts at this point. But man, I, I think you have to at least be somewhat encouraged that one, you didn't get torn apart, and two, you created chances. And, and that mix of things is something that we haven't seen from Leeds. We'd seen them create chances, but we'd seen them ship far too many chances as well. And the fact that in game one against a Leicester team that has real talent, Leeds came out and, and kind of hit those two pillars. That's encouraging for me now to encourage the rest of the fan base or really the entire fan base. You got to start winning games and getting points. Yeah, the Leicester's um, expected goals value in this game, which was 0.35, was mm-hmm. the lowest of any team in the Premier League this weekend. Um, so that tells you that there has been a change in focus at Leeds. They, you could see the change in the defensive approach. There were times when you could visibly see a player resisting. I watched this one live. You could you could yeah. see a player resisting the urge to track a man as they would have under Bielsa and instead they held their position in, in a more zonal sense. And under Bielsa, I know Harvey Barnes still has a good game uh, here and, and Vardy was pretty effective as well at times. But I honestly honest believe Vardy and Barnes would have just torn this Leeds team apart under, under Bielsa. So I know it's difficult for Leeds. They lost this game, but some encouraging signs. The next two games are huge for Marsh and, and Leeds. They've got Villa at home. Obviously, Villa are a decent team, but it's a home match. And then they've got Norwich at home. They need to win that Norwich match. I, I know... It'll be his third match in charge, so it seems incredibly harsh, but this is just the situation that Marsh is in. That's a must win match. You can't you can't um you certainly can't lose that match. So yeah. Time times are tough it's for, for Marsh, but that's what he signed up for. Hey Graham. Um I didn't watch all of this game. It sounds like you did, so I'll ask you this question. Um who are the players that you thought like seemed to be the ones who had responded the best uh, in training? Which I know you can't know because you weren't there, but I mean, who are the ones that it felt like when there was somebody starting to maybe think about man marking, was there anybody that comes to mind who was make- making sure everybody was playing the new style and not the old style? I read a couple reports that Rodrigo seemed to be the one that was conducting things pretty consistently. Yeah, so so Rodrigo, absolutely. I thought in, in the back, in the fullback position, so Junior Firpo is maybe a, a, a prime example. He, under Bielsa, I felt was very, very quick to track his man and just leave space to be exploited in behind, and he didn't do that so much. And and I thought it was telling that a lot of Leicester's play was coming down the, the, the left the left side where Stuart Dallas was, and he did it as well. But on the on the right side where they had Albrighton and, and, and the Chowdhury, Leicester weren't really getting much joy because Junior Furpo was doing a much better job of holding his position. So I thought Furpo um, did that pretty well. Rodrigo leading from the front as well. Um, Luke Ayling as well. He has been pretty poor recently, but he he had a, he had a decent game. I didn't feel like he got he got turned that often by Jamie Vardy. So yeah, it does seem like there was only four days between Marsh being appointed yeah. and then this first game. So very difficult to judge them on that. But you could see the the the, the changes that have been made already and in, in the way that they they played. And I was pretty happy to see a lot of the coverage, at least from the 
like local blogger level or like what seemed to be fairly positive i think because marsh had come in and said the right things about bielsa hadn't been disrespectful to the man who'd been there and i think in that way did endear a little bit of love because of how much fans seemed to like bielsa but i think there was also an acceptance that maybe teams had figured out bielsa's leads and had like specific game plans for how to negate what they were doing and so for marsh to come in and and get the team sort of functioning in a way he wants them to function but at the same time he made smart decisions, in my opinion, like not playing Patrick Bamford in this one, a player who could have made a difference if you want to try to chase an equalizer in the final 10 minutes, but he's also still coming back from injury, and just as likely as that he has something flare up, he re-injures it, and now in your first game, you've injured this player because you're desperate for the short-term result. To me, that felt like long-term thinking, which I think is what leads need right now. Uh, obviously, they need some wins as well and to stay up, but I think... There does it does seem like there is a a a decent foundation so far with Jesse Marsh at Leeds. Uh, Burnley nil, Chelsea four. Kai Havertz with a brace here, and a fourth from Mister Christian Pulisic. Uh, Graham, some unpleasant uh, reactions from the crowd here. There was a mo- uh, there was a yeah. applause for Ukraine at the start of this game, which was interrupted by Chelsea fans uh, singing songs for their Russian owner Roman Abramovich or owner. Uh, de facto owner um it's not the moment to do this said thomas tuckle so that one kind of overshadowing the action on the pitch ground yeah and, and fair play to tuckle on, on calling it out because he could have quite easily have uh, not called out his own fans it's one thing to praise roman abramovich i understand if chelsea fans are conflicted on their feelings towards him because obviously in a football sense he did a great deal for that club there are other factors to consider so that is questionable enough but to do it during the the moment, so applause or reflection or whatever it was for Ukraine before the game, that sends an additional message, um, which is a pretty disgusting one, to be honest. So absolutely fair play to Tuchel for calling calling that out. Definitely so. Uh, Graham, something, something, praise Christian Pulisic. <laughs> yeah, well, he deserves it, actually, for, for once. <laughs> uh, he's, he's, he's playing well at the moment. Uh, there's been a lot of focus on Kai Havertz. I've spoken a lot about Kai Havertz recently. But Pulisic has, has also played an important role in, in sparking Chelsea's attack in, into life again. It feels like Chelsea have turned a corner. That front three of Havertz, Mount Pulisic has has fixed a lot of the problems that they were having in attack. I don't know what it means for Romelu Lukaku um, at the moment, but right now that is not Chelsea's primary concern. They just want to have a good finish to the season. And um, Pulisic is, there's a good balance to that front three. You know, Havertz, we've spoken about, as I say, everything that he brings, but Pulisic is the out-and-out winger, that Chelsea need to provide a bit of verticality, a bit of width, a bit of directness as well, because that's maybe not something Mount on the other side offers. So, yeah, I like that balance, that front three. And I think Tuchel has been desperate for a front three to stick all the way through the season. He wants to stick with a front three. And now he's got that front three and barring injuries, I think Pulisic is going to get a really good run between now and the end of the season. Uh, Newcastle 2, Brighton 1, Newcastle Street continuing here, the relegation uh, looking like it's going to be in the review mirror for a while for for Newcastle, Uh, good for them I guess, Uh, Aston Villa 4, Southampton 0, a very good win for the villains here, a couple of amazing goals as well, did you see the Ollie Watkins one Graham? I did Uh, and I thought Coutinho in particular in this game was incredible, like this is the Coutinho that we've missed and has been missing for 3-4 years and Mm. Villa have unlocked him and what a player they have there. Yeah, uh, indeed. Uh, Norwich won, Brentford three, and Ivan Tony Hattrick here uh, with T- uh, Timo Pukki getting a late consolation. A really good moment. I don't know if you guys saw this. Uh, uh, Brandon Williams uh, for Norwich uh, getting pulled down by Christian Eriksen. Re- uh, he's, he's starting to have a go at uh, Eriksen on the floor, realizing who he is, and his face turning from absolute fury, going from 100 to zero in like a millisecond. 
big smile on his face and gives him a hug and starts laughing instead, Graham. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was one of the, the best moments of the weekend, to be honest. It was, uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. That was excellent indeed. Uh, Liverpool won West Ham, Neil Sadiamani with a first half goal. West Ham pushing them pretty hard, though. Uh, Fornals, Lanzini and Antonio, I think they had some pretty good opportunities mm-hmm. in this one, Graham. Yeah, and Lanzini and Fornals in particular should have scored. That Liverpool high line gave West Ham encouragement all the way through the game. Antonio in particular was giving Canati all sorts of problems. And um, Liverpool were, were slightly fortunate to, to come away with the win here. They were a long way from, from their best. I thought Luis Diaz looked dangerous again, and most of Liverpool's good moments came through him in, in, in some way. And it was quite telling ab- uh, about the way he is playing at the moment and how he's fit into that team that when Klopp made some changes in the second half and Diego Jota comes on, it's it's Mohamed Salah and not Lu- Luis Diaz who comes off the pitch. So um, he was the best Liverpool player. As I say, slightly fortunate West Ham will feel they should have taken something from this game. They should have, yes. And uh, also Watford 2, Arsenal 3. Uh, hashtag never in doubt for Arsenal this one. Uh, wearing red shorts, Graham, which looked weird, I always thought. But um, what else about it's this good. game? Hernandez with a pretty good bicycle kick for the opener. Yeah, yeah, in- incredible. Uh, there were some good goals in the Premier League this weekend. And, and Arsenal, switching it to look at uh, Arsenal, I thought some of the attacking play from them in this match was was sensational. The second and third Arsenal goals in particular, the, the third goal involves about five different players. It's all single touch and quick movements. And then Lacazette is um, unselfish. He lays it off to Martinelli perfectly in the edge of the box. And then he finds the net. And this team at the moment, this Arsenal team, they're just kind of on the same wave, wavelength right now. I still have concerns about their lack of depth, um, at least in comparison to some of their other top four rivals but when that first team is is fit and firing i think they're looking really good at the moment and a bit of vindication for arteta that the the process is actually leading to something they're up into the top four now first time in two months and you wouldn't bet against them making that position stick Indeed. Let's turn our attentions to Major League Soccer. Week two, baby. Uh, Sunday night's headline game, uh, LAFC 1, Portland 1. Another week, another Jimmy Chara acrobatic goal we got here with uh, Mabadou Fall earning a point for the host deep in injury time. Joe, this one was past my bedtime. I'm going to spring it on you and ask if you watched it. (laughs) I watched bits and pieces of it. That assist from Brian Rodriguez to drive at at a Portland player and then cut the ball across the face of goal for Mamadou Fall. It's ridiculous, right? That's what LAFC needed in this game to really unlock things in the in the final third. Not nearly as good of a performance from them as week one against the Colorado Rapids. They're still trying to find their balance under Steve Terundolo. In Portland, I still have some questions about them in general, but for as long as Jimmy Chara keeps scoring goals like that, I'm going to keep those questions quiet, Ryan Bailey. Uh, any questions, Joe, for Austin? Uh, 5-1 win over <laughs> in Miami here. 10 goals in the opening two games, as we mentioned earlier in the show. Um, what do we make of this? My only question for Austin is, can they do this again? And the, the answer to that is no. Sorry to pull the rug out from under everybody. But, <laughs> I mean, they, they open with Cincinnati and they open with Inter-Miami. They score five on, on both of those teams. They've got Portland and Seattle in their next two games. So things are about to get a little trickier for them. Minnesota United uh, after San Jose as well. So those are the next four for uh, Austin FC and Josh Wolf. But, man... I don't want to just be the wet blanket here because there's a lot to like about this Austin team that may actually be sustainable. Sebastian Gerisi was phenomenal. He's, he played a little bit deeper than I've seen him in the past. He played as a left side of number eight with Alex Ring as the right side of number eight in front of Danny Pereira. And Austin looked really, really good. Into Miami also are just really, really bad. Breck Shea is a left-sided <laughs> center back, which is that was wild. ridiculous. It's been, tr- it's been done and tried before. It's not a good look, but Inter-Miami are dealing with injury issues on top of the, the lack of talent they're already dealing with. Uh, Gonzalo Higuain's body language is, is not good. There's a lot of issues with this team. 
uh, with Inter Miami that I don't think are going to go away anytime soon. But Austin fans certainly have a lot to be excited about after two games. Uh, yeah, indeed. Uh, six goals also in San Jose for the, the Earthquakes against Columbus. 3-3 this one. The Earthquakes were 3-1 down in the 84th minute and then a brace from Francisco Calvo saving the day for San Jose. It was goalless between Vancouver and NYCFC. Uh, the Red Bulls, on the other hand, won 4-1 on the road at Toronto. Graham, this Lewis Morgan fella, tell us more. I, I picked the wrong Scott for MVP, <laughs> didn't I? That was my mistake. I mean, if he's oh. going to score a hat-trick in every game, then yeah, he's probably going to be MVP. I don't know if Lewis Morgan can keep that up, but what, what, a, what a performance. And in particular, the first two finishes, those, those first-time kind of curling finishes into the corner were, were incredible. His third goal is, is good as well, because obviously the defending from TFC is poor and he has a whole half to run into, but he manages to, to keep his cool. The pitch at BMO right now is, is pretty bobbly, so I was, when he was running through, I'm thinking, oh, he's going, to, he's going to get away from him, but he shows some pretty good composure. Um, I'm pleased to see Lewis Morgan doing well in MLS and it feels like he ha- he got out of Inter-Miami uh, at the right time and it feels like the Red Bulls is going to be a good fit for him. Uh, a 1-0 win for New England over Dallas. Uh, Carlos Hill getting the goal from the spot. Uh, Sporting Kansas City, 1-0 win over Houston. Uh, Joe, Hector Herrera on the way to Houston. If that is the case, does he become Triple H, Houston, Hector Herrera? Oh, without a doubt. And, and it, he is. Yeah, he will be in Houston after his year with Atlético <laughs> Madrid is over. It's a massive signing for the Houston Dynamo and Ted Siegel. Plenty has been discussed about this already, especially last week after this news was first breaking. But man, I, I couldn't be left with a mixed feeling after watching the Houston Dynamo lose to SKC. It's a, it's a phenomenal signing for them. It's a great get-in. It shows the ambition that this Dynamo team has. And then you watch them on the field and you realize, okay, this Dynamo team has so much further to go. Hector Herrera is not going to get this team in the playoffs. I'm not even sure he gets this team close to the playoffs. They need attacking difference makers. They have players on on the bench in this game in Coco uh, Carasquilla and Darwin Quintero who haven't started either of the first two under Pablo Nagamura. That needs to change and need to get those players in the lineup because without them, they're really lacking in the attack. Yes, they have Sebastian Ferreira up top as that number nine who they brought in over the offseason. Big DP for them. But they need a lot of help. And Hector Herrera is a good start, but there needs to be more here. Joe, is it safe to Both. say that Triple H is the pedigree they need? You're welcome, wrestling fans. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm going to pretend like I got that reference. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Same. Uh, both, um, both Queen City teams lost 1-0 at home. Taylor, FC Cincinnati, anything to say about them? Uh, you know, keep on keeping on, guys. Doing, doing great. I mean, they had the Bootsy Collins TIFO, and to me, that's a win right there. There were some solid TIFOs this week, and Austin had a great one. Uh, Charlotte obviously had a solid one, but the Bootsy Collins one made me happy. It made Bootsy happy as well. So I think that's, that's a good way to round out the weekend, although our time in Charlotte, also a pretty fun time. Wait, wait, yes. wait. Sorry. One, one thing, one thing. Sorry. And then you guys can, can talk all you want about Charlotte. I know we give Cincinnati a lot of, of yeah. crap on this show, and everybody else does too, and it's, it's been deserved. But they were actually pretty good in this game. I think this is one of the best games they've played in a long time. And you could see the building blocks under Pat Noonan. They came out in a 3-4-1-2. They pressed some. They, they were really direct in attack. And they had chances. I think they were better than DC United in this game, who I have some real questions and concerns about. But I, I just wanted to give Cincinnati one beat of hope because they don't usually get that. Can we start that as a weekly segment? The Joe Lowry, they were actually pretty good corner. And we just give Joe the opportunity to talk about one team that everybody's ripping on that he thought was actually good. Because I think that would be genuinely fascinating. And I do think 
sometimes yeah. you do get just the pile on versus the actual analysis. So thanks for that, Joe. I am I am wearing my glasses so I can push them up and go, well, actually. There really we loud. go. <laughs> there we go. Perfect. Perfect. Well, that segment is now becoming TSS canon. Right. Thank you very much, Taylor. We shall reintroduce that. Uh, and you mentioned mm-hmm. there that uh, Charlotte FC played their home opener, their inaugural home opener against LA mm-hmm. Galaxy. Uh, 1-0 win for the Galaxy. Taylor, you and I, we saw it in person, bud. We did. How is it for you, man? You've been working a long time for this one. I'm assuming it was emotional. It was indeed. Yeah, just to let listener know, if they don't already, I have been working for Charlotte FC since the team was announced in December 2019. So this was a culmination of a lot of effort from a lot of people. And, you know, to talk about, we can talk about the sporting side of things a bit later on, but like the, the production of the game, the way the fans were, the, the way the whole day played out, Taylor, I thought was just wonderful. Really, really exciting stuff. Uh, we went to a tailgate beforehand. There was like upwards of, I'd say, 3,000 people at this tailgate. We did a march to the game with them. Really, really good atmosphere, really good times. Like, you know, Southern hospitality was the order of the day, I'd say, Taylor, with the, with the generosity that the people showed. And, I mean, what did, what did you think when we got into the stadium? Because they did, like, um, before the teams came out, it was like, like a basketball or maybe a hockey kind of, you know, the lights dimming and, uh, and the production and the loud music. I thought it was very exciting. Um, one thing I noticed was the stands at Bank of America Stadium were actually bowing as fans yeah. jumped up and down. And there's me thinking... You know the Panthers have never made fans do this. I'm, I'm, I'm hope this stadium lasts for 90 minutes. Frankly, the way this is going, but that was a comment I got over and over again yesterday. Taylor was that uh, even people like working concession stands, you know, law enforcement, all saying this is more wild than we've ever seen for any Panthers game before. This atmosphere is fantastic. Yeah, I, I've heard that uh, from Atlanta uh, folks as well. That like the football games are great, but they never have the same atmosphere as Atlanta United games, and it's nice to see Charlotte. Uh, bringing that same energy, and I thought it was evident with the national anthem. I felt so bad uh, for the woman who was singing. I, I, I did not write down her name. I apologize. But the the mic cuts out. It comes back on for like a half second and then cuts out again. But rather than let that be awkward, the Charlotte fans all just pick it up and sang the national anthem with her. So 75,000 people singing the national anthem was a cool way to start. It did show that sort of chemistry and camaraderie. Uh, and mm. then the actual on-field things happened. And really my major note from this game was that the goal was very awesome from our vantage point. Uh, from where the press box was, you could see it the whole way. And it was so lofted and so slow that it's the type of goal that from the angle we were at, you could tell it was going in. It was sort of bending in the exact right direction. And because it's so slow, it allows you to just see the panic on the goalkeeper's face as he tries to react to it. Afterwards, he said he wasn't sure if it was a cross or a shot. He'd have to watch it again. It was definitely a shot. It was a great goal for for now, Perez. That was a very, very fun moment to watch that one go in. Wait, who, Even if the fans probably who didn't Who said like. they'd have to check if it was a cross? The keeper. Right. Kalina. Has he ever seen a cross before? <laughs> There was a couple of moments. There was one earlier in the game where someone hit the frame. I forget who it was. Yeah, for Galaxy. question. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So it was question. And it was, I think he was maybe conflating or comparing those two, uh, perhaps, because he thought okay. that might have been a cross. Possibly. <laughs> oh, and, and, and then Vasquez as well. Victor Vasquez, man, he really does play. It's so fun to watch him in person. I had never, never gotten that opportunity before. He is everywhere. I, I tweeted this. Goes it was not wants. a joke. What did you say, Joe? He goes where he wants, man. He does. I don't. It's it's wild. He was left back. He was right back. He was a central midfielder. He was a holding midfielder. He was a number nine. He was out wide on both sides. He really does roam around, and there's so much fluidity to this Galaxy team. Uh, but he, he makes them super fun. And then when he has attempts like he had in the first half, I think he hits the post or the crossbar. I can't remember which. But 
He spots the goalkeeper off his line. It's a great bit of skill. Doesn't quite come off, but then Efren Alvarez uh, uh, one-ups him there at the very end. That was that yeah. was pretty great. Overall, though, Ryan, I will say I like Miguel Angel Ramirez a lot. I had really only heard him in that, like, we're screwed context. Um, mm-hmm. I do think part of it is that he does a very, very passable Pep Guardiola impression. Kind of looks like him. Yep. Has the same like whispery sort of way of talking is very intense when he talks, but also on the sidelines, Cardigans. very intense, tons of gesticulating, tons of pointing. And I think is a very charismatic coach. His players seem to like him. Obviously the yeah. result does not go well, but you can see that it is sort of a long-term project. They're assembling this roster over the course of the season. We'll see where they end up at the end, but I do think mm. he's got good ideas. I think he is going to be a good coach uh, for this team. Maybe that's just me wanting to like him, but that was my other big takeaway from this one. Uh, I hope Miguel yeah. Angel does big things. Like, likewise, I'm inclined to agree. And obviously, two losses for Charlotte so far. I'm going to Atlanta next week, so quite possibly, quite likely for three, over oh, three in the first three games. But what I saw, Taylor, and what I have seen so far is ingredients for potential. Maybe that's the way to phrase it, because, you know, this, this team does have its shortcomings. I think like uh, Carol Sadursky, the DP, um, didn't get much service. And when he did, wasn't uh, entirely efficient with it. I think there was a few other performances I, I was I was wondering about and sort of maybe a hole in the middle of the field, which um, Galaxy exploited a little bit. But, you know, pretty solid in defense. What was it, 21 shots that Galaxy had? It was like 21 to 5, I think the numbers were. They, out, they outshot Charlotte. But uh, in general, I thought the back line and, and those in front handled it pretty well well um and yeah the ingredients for potential and yeah let, let's let's say maybe in the summer they they add a few more ingredients and um not 14th hashtag not 14th in i would say I would, I would maybe be slightly less charitable i would say if you're saying they have the ingredients for potential i would say they have the shopping list for ingredients to then cook the potential because i think they and probably the need to do some purchasing <laughs> but i also think they're they're a little ways away from being where they would probably like to be at the end of the season Indeed. Ryan, are you going to Atlanta? I am indeed. I am. Yeah, that'll, that'll be interesting to see. So is that has that got the potential to be a rivalry then, Atlanta and Charlotte? That is very much what they're teeing up. Um, uh, David Tepper at the announcement um, said, screw that city in, uh, oh, in, in reflection okay. of Atlanta. He very much from day zero, day one, was uh, uh, teeing that one up, yeah. Okay, so that'll be that'll be interesting to see what that atmosphere is like and whether there are kind of signs of that rivalry and what you experience at uh, uh Mercedes-Benz. So, report back, please. Will do. That's your next assignment. (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, I'll take my homework there, Graham. I am looking forward to that one. Uh, Going from 74,500 at Bank of America Stadium to a stadium which will have, uh, you know, uh, uh, high-five figures as well. Uh, And comparing those atmospheres will be fascinating. And yeah, I'm not expecting a W from Charlotte in this this one coming up this week, but I was very encouraged by what I saw. And I think, yeah, once again, the team has done a good job in terms of the production of the game day. It'll be different um, when the top tier isn't open at the stadium. Um, It'll be capped at about 38,000 with the lower bowl uh, so it would be a little bit of a different prospect going forward but I'm, I'm pretty encouraged as I say and uh, and the local fans full credit to them as well Taylor didn't you think like that um, I don't know how well you could hear it in the press box but the chants were going throughout the game there was flags waving you know I'll tell you what one thing I noticed Taylor is um the entire lower bowl, almost the entirety, was standing for the whole game. Not just the supporters behind the goal, but like even on the sidelines in the more expensive seats, standing for at least definitely the most of the first, all the first half and a lot of the second two. I thought that was indicative of one another thing I've not seen in MLS before. Yeah, I mean that that is wonderful. I will continue to go back to my my more cold reality of 
you want those people to continue to stand, continue to show up, continue to be there, you probably got to put a little bit more exciting product on the pitch. I think you got to bring in some creative players that can get you some goals that can kind of trucks. make that crowd <laughs> cheer really loud instead of standing and clapping and singing the songs. You want to reward that loyalty. You want to reward that belief. And I hope that Charlotte do just that. Indeed. And it was nice. It was lovely to see you, Taylor, you as, well, as I should friend. say. You lovely well. to see what a lot of our uh, media counterparts mm-hmm. and some, have some refreshments with some of them afterwards as well. Very, very good day. Joe and I were there in spirit. You yeah. Were. They brought little pictures of you us in their wallets. So. Since, since, <laughs> since Ryan mentioned it, I'm going to tell a story very, very briefly. I will tell it in abbreviated fashion. Uh, we had some drinks with some folks, including, uh, I'm not just telling this to name drop, but Alexi Lyle, Stu Holden, Heather O'Reilly. As we were leaving the Clang. bar, we... There is a man passed out on the street uh, in his own sick, I believe is the phrase of uh, the polite world. Uh, And Heather O'Reilly turns and says, guys, that's not that's not okay." And they stop and they wake him up and Stu Holden gets his phone and calls a person who comes and gets him. And they alert the bar staff to bring him water and sit with him. And I cannot imagine what it would be like if I were that person, if that person were a soccer fan. To wake up from a drunken stupor and have Alexi Lala, Stu Holden, and Heather O'Reilly checking on you, you would feel like you were not on this planet anymore, I think. But uh, just wanted to shout them out for being wonderful human beings and handling that and then getting on a plane the next morning and flying to L.A. and doing that one as well. Good stuff, fellas. Good stuff. And good stuff, Charlotte, on the whole. Good stuff all round. And good stuff, Joe and Taylor. We'll, get, we'll all get to a game together at some point, I'm sure. I'm sure of that. Uh, Let's take a very quick break. When we come back, the rest of Europe, including the big one in Serie A, back shortly. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan Graham and Joe. Just kidding. Just kidding. Very much just kidding, because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show. And I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the the the, uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic. And all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you are connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's take a quick look at the Bundesliga. Uh, let's sound the alarm for Bayern dropping points because they sure did. Bayern are getting a 1-1 draw at home to Leverkusen. Uh, Niklas Sula uh, having a goal uh, uh, leveled by uh, Thomas Muller. Own goal. Oh boy, don't see too many of those. Uh, Dortmund can close the gap on Wednesday. They play Mainz. Um, also a 1-1 draw. Sorry, t- sorry, Graham? 
They won't. They won't close the gap <laughs> on Wednesday. <sighs> we'll switch the alarm off on Wednesday then, Graham. Okay. Um, RB Leipzig also with a 1-1 draw against Freiburg. Uh, Angelino rescuing a point in the 90th minute. Peppy watch. Augsburg finally won a game. 1-0 after, over Armenia Bielefeld. Uh, they're three points above the relegation zone. Checks, notes, Ricardo Pepe, unused sub. Okay. Uh, La Liga. Let's head to La Liga. Graham, Real Madrid, eight points clear with a 4-1 win over Real Sociedad. Uh, yep, so this one had the, the potential to be tricky for Real Madrid. Sostad take the, the lead. Actually, I should say Real Sostad because Real Sostad fans rightly get annoyed when people call them Sostad because Sostad is not a place. That means Ro- Royal Society, their team name. So Real Sostad took the lead early on through Oyathabal. Right. Um, <laughs> but then the dynamic of the match changed right at the end of the first half when Kamavinga and Modric decided to have a long-range shooting competition amongst themselves, two stunners within three minutes of each other. Uh, and then the second half, Real Madrid just put their, their foot down, Benzema and Asensio scoring to make it 4-1. Uh, Modric was the man of the match in this game, one of the, his best performances of the season. I am honestly at a bit of a loss to explain what's going on with Modric. He's 36, but you genuinely cannot tell my bold claim is he's playing better this season than when he won the Ballon d'Or. I think this is the wow. best I've ever seen Luka Modric for Real Madrid. Uh, and I've watched a lot of Real Madrid in the last few years. He's he's incredible at the moment. And uh, Real Madrid are, have uh, got an eight-point lead at the top of La Liga. It's looking pretty good for them. Graham, thank you for dropping the knowledge I didn't get in college about Real Sociedad there. Uh, Taylor, Arsenal's also not a place, just so you know. Um, <laughs> Barcelona up to third. They were ninth in November. They got a 2-1 win over Elche, Ferran Torres and Memphis getting the goals, Graham. Yep, don't say they're back. Don't say they're back, but they're getting uh, they're getting close to that point. A hard fought win. They have played better in recent games, but I guess a win is a win. An interesting fact: if La Liga started on January first, so we're taking just results from twenty twenty two, Barcelona would be top of La Liga on twenty points. Real Madrid would be second, uh, joint with Sevilla and Villarreal on seventeen points. So I guess that just proves that maybe Barcelona have turned a bit of a corner. But unfortunately for them, uh, they're still laden with their results from the first half of the season, and they are still only. Uh, I think they're thirds now. Yes, uh, I haven't got the table in front of me, but yes, they're third. Up to third. Uh, second place Sevilla, meanwhile, dropping points, maybe helping Barcelona in that chase with a nil-nil draw at uh, Alaves on Friday. Uh, Real Betis uh, losing 3-1 to Atletico Madrid. Uh, João Felix getting a brace there. Atleti are in fourth, equal on points with Barcelona. Uh, what do we say about that, Graham? Good prep for better prep than Man United for the Champions League. Oh, they're actually playing the following week, aren't they? Never mind. Yeah, yeah. So that that's that's next week. But nonetheless, Atleti seem to have turned a little bit of a corner. I've used that phrase for both Barcelona and Atleti, but it's true. Manchester United, I don't think, have even seen the corner yet. Um, so yeah, maybe Atleti are in slightly better shape. Yao Felix, he's now got three goals and one assist in his last three games, and finally he's starting to find the, the sort of form that Atleti have waited a long time for. We all know he's capable of brilliance but a little bit of consistency from him now um, and I think given where Real Betis were in the, in the table and the season they've had so far for Atleti to go to the Benito Vela Marine and get a win like this a, com- a comprehensive win mm. is a bit of a statement result for them so they can be pretty pleased with this result and performance uh, Monsieur Ruthven, voulez-vous parler uh, Ligue 1 for a moment, please? Nice 1, Paris Saint-Germain 0. Second place, Nice, uh, handing PSG their second league defeat in three games. Woo. Yeah, and, and PSG, the, the context here is they're still 13 points clear at the top of Ligue 1, but they have won just um, seven out of 14 away games this season, which for a team with PSG's talent advantage and the, the general advantage that they have in that division... 
for me, is not good enough. Um, and this is now a huge week for Michel Pochettino in particular. So PSG obviously have the second leg of their Champions League tie against Real Madrid on Wednesday. If they go out of that competition, I think he's in big trouble. In fact, I'll go further than that. I'll predict that he will be he'll be finished at PSG. He might not be sacked immediately. Maybe he goes at the end of the season. But it very, very much feels like his future as manager is on the line. PSG will win league on, but they've been pretty... Uh, they've not been very convincing in domestic football, and if they don't go far in the Champions League, I don't really know what Pochettino has to has to cling to to keep him in that job. So a big week for him. Oh, sacre bleu, Graham. Mon Dieu. Indeed. Etc. and so on. Let's finish up today with Serie A, um, roundup of round 28. Uh, the, the title race is uh, as hot as usual. Um, uh, Friday night, Inter Milan got a 5-0 win over the league-whipping boy Salernitana. That keeps them uh, in... Uh, where are they? They're in second place, two points behind Milan at the moment. Uh, Roma getting a 1-0 win over Atalanta at the Olympico. Tammy Abraham with his third goal in four games. Red cards for Mkhitaryan and Martin Darun in that one. A uh, boy. The Venice fashion brand lost 4-1 at home to Sassuolo. Venice are in the relegation zone uh, with an 18th spot in 18th spot. And Sassuolo, their third win in a row. Hipsters, did we establish, Graham, the hipster's choice at the moment? We did, didn't we? Oh, yeah. 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 I like their I like their, uh, their attack and they also have good kits. Yes. So, takes every box. They do indeed. Boxes ticked. Um, Juventus, they remain in fourth with a 1-0 home win over Spezia on Sunday. Ivara Morata, Graham, making a difference. Yeah, and it just adds to the sense that Juventus have... Um, found something uh, Vlaovic involved in, in, in the goal that um, Morata scores he kind of lays it off to I think it's Locatelli running through the middle he then plays it to, to Morata so there's just a sense um, that Juventus have found an attacking unit that, that works and Vlaovic is, is key to that he's just given them a bit of an uh, attacking apex obviously the bad news for Juventus and USMNT fans is that Weston McKennie has now been ruled out for the rest of the season. That is a serious blow for both the national team is and Juventus. I would say, su- <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a little bit. Um, not to rub salt in the wounds, I think uh, Juventus are maybe slightly better equipped to deal with that. They have players who can come in and, and do what McKennie does reasonably well, maybe not to the same standards, and we saw that in, in this game. But yeah, uh, USMNT, I'm, I'm sorry, you can't have nice things, it seems. Oh, dear. Well, at least he gets to go someplace he can have ranch on his pizza again, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think he just has ranch on his pizza and Turin and uh, just takes the, the hate. You're probably not allowed to have ranch either. J- j- just a shot in the dark. Joe, d- does this mean like who is who's stepping in for Weston McKinney? Who's going to who's going to bail us out? Who's going to make everything OK? I mean, I think it's the same list of folks that uh-huh. we talked about when he first was injured, right? Kellen Acosta could be an option. I'd really prefer to not see him there. But at the Azteca, maybe you want him as one of those number eights to really run and do a bunch of that stuff. I'd probably still rather see him at the six. It's Luca De La Torre for me. That's the person I want to see get these minutes. Maybe Paxton Pomacle can sneak his way in there. Probably not. Almost definitely not. But man, after the start of the season he's had in MLS, I think he should at least be in that conversation. Uh, we have gone long today, gents, but just a quick note, we'd like to talk a little bit about Napoli against Milan. Big one at the top of the table, this one. Uh, uh, Milan uh, getting the win, 1-0 at Napoli here. Uh, Napoli could have gone top of the league with a win, but they remain in third place behind uh, the Milan teams. A very tightly contested, uh, contested game, Joe. Uh, each team having a decent penalty shout that wasn't given. What did you make of it? I thought this was a game that was defined by different defensive styles. It wasn't defined really by either team's attacking play, in my view, although Milan certainly get that goal off of a free kick and all that good stuff. So there is some attacking moments here. 
But really, I think the contrast and the most interesting thing was Napoli's 4-4-2 block and Milan's man-marking system. They come out under Pioli, and they really are man-marking in a lot of different areas. The most noticeable one is Tonali on Zielinski. Tonali was everywhere. He would not let Napoli breathe. And, and the other two midfielders for Milan were doing something similar in Cassier and, and Benacer. They were trying to really congest midfield for Napoli and make it really hard for them to build through those spaces. And I don't think Napoli responded particularly well in this game. I thought, generally speaking, they were too stagnant in possession on and off the ball, especially with those off-the-ball moments. Because when you're playing against a man-marking team, having really well-coordinated and an aggressive vertical off-ball movement, and really vertical and, and horizontal off-ball movement, that's that's how you break through a man-marking team. And Napoli had it in spurts, and Signe would come inside, and he would kind of fill that 10 role as Zielinski would drop. But just not enough of it in this game for Napoli. And, and for Milan's mm. part, I think they're a bit fortunate to get a goal off of a set piece. It's a nice def- deflected, redirected, whatever we want to call it, goal from Olivier Giroud. But it's nice really in that it's important, not that it was technically elegant or anything like that. So, yeah, again, back to my initial point, I think defensively this this game was decided defensively, let me put it that way. Yeah, and Graham, they, they picked up on the CBS commentary about the, the Milan centre-backs tomorrow in Kalulu doing a very good job and keeping up with Osimhen, who's um, obviously got a lot of pace. Yeah, absolutely. I thought Tomori and, and Kalulu were, were particularly impressive. There were a few occasions when Osimhen, he used those kind of go-go gadget legs to stride into <laughs> the box and gave uh, Tomori and Kalulu a, 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 something to think about, but they handled handled them uh, handled them pretty well and uh, this was the this was the first time Milan have kept a clean sheet in Naples since a a nil nil draw in two thousand and nine. Wow! Um, and some more historical context: AC Milan have now won two Serie A away games against Napoli in uh, in the league for the first time since nineteen eighty one. So it's not a place that they go to very often and and get a, a good result, but they certainly got a good result here. Joe, Graham, I can I add one ask, more? Did... Sorry, sorry, Ryan. I just want to add one more beat on the centre backs from Milan because I agree they were really good, and I'll be the first person to praise centre-backs, even when maybe I, I shouldn't. I think in this game, though, Tomori and Kalulu's jobs weren't all that hard. Yes, Osiman is dangerous. He's a goal threat, and he has speed to get him behind. He has technical quality as well. But because of how poor I think Napoli were for large stretches of this game, Osiman was never really given a chance to run at the centre-backs individually. He was almost never given a chance to run at them 1v1. It was almost always 1v2 versus both of Milan's central defenders. I think Napoli did themselves a disservice, and, and Milan really Milan's lives were made easier by the fact that Napoli wasn't particularly dangerous on the ball because that meant that Osiman constantly had an uphill battle against Milan's centre-backs. So again, just to be clear, did do a very good job in this game. What one player who who did have the opportunity to run was uh, Tiro Hernandez, and he didn't stop running the whole match. Taylor, <laughs> oh, I think yes. you enjoyed his his energetic he, performance I, as much as I did. He's one of the most fun players in that league, I swear. Just because he is either going to do ridiculous attacking things in the first minute or the ninety fifth minute, whatever it might be, but also like seven yellow cards on the season, uh, two red cards that puts him top of the table for most red cards. So he's also going to scrap. He's also going to get into it. Maybe he'll have a dive or two as he did in this game. Uh, he is. Just a super, super fun player to watch. And if you look at his stats on FB Ref, also telling that I think he's in like the 80th or higher percentile on like every single attacking stat for a fullback. And then uh, for every sort of defensive stat is in the bottom half, which shows you how attacking and exciting he is. Maybe less so defensively, which maybe explains some of those cards. If only you got to play every game. Because all those cards, if only, if only. Uh, Joe, I was only going to interrupt you earlier to ask if you understood Go-Go Gadget as a reference. Uh, I've heard it before. 
I, I don't know. <laughs> okay. YouTube for you later, uh, sir. Give this me, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, one last moment on this uh, on this uh, game, Joe. Uh, a prediction or on this on this league. A prediction. Who's going to win Serie A? Quick, go. Okay. Joe uh, hates every part of the end of this inter- episode. I have to guess. <laughs> I, I do. I really do. Exposing my lack of cultural knowledge and Joe, making not knowing it's a tough gadget, one for me. A cartoon from way before you were born is not showing your lack of cultural knowledge. I promise you. Uh, Matthew Broderick movie. Hello. <laughs> I'm not sure Matthew Broderick remembers uh, that he made that movie. I'm shocked that you did, Ryan. So credit to you, I guess. Inter for me to answer Ryan's question. I still think Inter is the best team in this league. They have, you know, if they get all three points from the game in hand, they will be top of the table. Mm-hmm. I I would put a very, very small amount of money on Inter if the odds were good enough, if, if you really forced my hand. How small? Uh, Five dollars. Ten bucks. Ten bucks. <laughs> I'll do ten. I'll be poor. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sure I'm irritating you with all these questions that you don't <laughs> no, want to good. answer, Joe. Let's end the, the podcast there. Gents, thank you so much. Uh, Taylor Rockwell, a pleasure as always. A pleasure to see yeah, you man. this weekend. I hope you felt as hungover as I did watching this Milan-Napoli game uh, after our antics on Saturday. And a pleasure you to talk to you today. You too. Graham Rutherford, pleasure as always, sir. Thank you, Ryan Billet. And Joe Lowry, uh, Inspector Gadget. If anything, just go and listen to the theme tune. It's wonderful. On it, on it, on it. <laughs> Listener, thank you. We'll be back with another one on the feed soon. But for now, bye! Da, 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 da.